So what about nurture? Remember visiting Grandma Petunia's house? She used to be called Granny P until the day you sat down on the urine-soaked sofa. From then on, the name Granny P was just a little bit too close to home. But anyways, every time one of your kids misbehaved, Petunia would offer some uninvited comment, something like, spare the rod, spoil the child, followed by a disapproving, it would never happen in my day. So which is it, nature or nurture? I want to begin by making some comments on science and the scientific methods that are used to look at this question. Then I'm going to follow it with a few comments on nature and then a few comments on nurture to hopefully draw a final conclusion on this hot debate. So, in terms of the scientific methods, how do we study this kind of issue? So the first comment is, it's not easy to study. Human behavior is incredibly complicated and there are multiple variables that determine our adult personalities. So there's nature and there's nurture, but there are other factors, uh, things like culture, uh, things like the environment um, that we're raised in. The other thing is that there's a long lag period um, from when the child is exposed to the variables to the point in which they become an adult. Unfortunately, we're stuck with our children for a good 20 years or so. Um, so there's a long time before we uh, see them develop their adult personality. The other problem is trying to define what it is we're trying to study. Um, so determining adult personality is not easy to do. Um, you know, how do you classify an introvert? How do you classify an extrovert? Um, how do you define what a neurotic is? Um, how do you work out what a jock is? How do you work out what a geek is? What about a beauty and a beast? It's very hard to put human beings into pigeonholes to allow science to study. The next issue is that um, human behavior is not static. It used to be thought that the human brain sort of developed through childhood um, and then in adulthood, basically it was all downhill from then. You reached your peak and your brain cells died off after that point in time. But in actual fact, we know that's not the case. The human brain is constantly changing. There's this process of pruning and reconnecting that goes on in the brain all the way through life. And in fact, the adult brain also regenerates. Um, so we're actually producing new brain cells right the way through life. To quote from a leading professor, he said this, the brain is the most dynamic, adaptable, and plastic organ in the body. So, that being said, the main methods that are used to study the issue of nature versus nurture are a number of types of studies. The first is called a cohort study. In a cohort study, what you do is you take children and you look at the different things they're exposed to, and then you follow them up over time and see what happens to the child. So it was from these types of studies, for instance, that we learnt it's better to sleep babies on their tummy, um, rather, uh, sorry, sleep babies on their back rather than on their tummy, um, because that reduces the risk of cot death. Um, the other types of studies that are used are twin studies. Now twins are, are fascinating creatures um, because um, identical twins share exactly the same genetic material. Um, so there's a 100% correlation in their genetic material. Non-identical twins have similar genetic material, but it's not exactly the same. So there's two types of twin studies you can do. You can do one um, where you compare identical and non-identical twins. So in this kind of study, the family environment's the same because both twins are growing up in the same family. But in identical twins, the genetic material is the same. But in non-identical twins, the genetic material differs. So you can work out the relative heritability of identical and non-identical twins, and that gives you some idea as to the genetic loading of different uh, behaviors and uh, also uh, illnesses. 
The other type of study is a twin adoption study, which is where you take identical twins that have been adopted out. So here, the family environment differs, but the genetic material is exactly the same. Unfortunately, adoption twin studies tend to be fairly old studies because the rates of adoption have dropped significantly um, within our society. All right, so now that I've talked about science, let's go on to the question of nature. We all know that genetics determine our makeup when we look at our children. You know, you look at your child and you see uh, the same characteristic in your child that you can see when you look in the mirror. This was reinforced to Rachel and I, um, Rachel's my wife, um, all three of our daughters have hummed when they're eating as a young child. So they would sit in the high chair and they would go <laughs> usually spitting out the food at the end of it. Anyways, the freaky thing about this is that my wife also hummed when she was a child. Um, thankfully, she's given up this habit now because it's not very romantic when we're sitting at the restaurant. But um, the really interesting thing about it is that none of our children have seen their mother humming um, while she eats. And none of the younger siblings saw the older sibling because the older sibling had grown out of it by the time the younger sibling um, came along. So one can only conclude that there was actually a food humming gene somewhere in our genetic material. Just when we thought the whole genetic thing was a whole lot of bar humbug, it actually turns out to be true. My sister-in-law, she married an identical twin, and to this day, I struggle to differentiate him and his brother. In fact, on the wedding day, I congratulated the wrong twin. <laughs> so two conclusions can be drawn from this. Firstly, physical characteristics are highly genetically determined. But secondly, psychiatrists are prone to making a goose of themselves at weddings. <laughs> Interestingly, our behavior is also highly determined um, by our genes. Many studies have shown that the introversion-extroversion dimension is highly genetically determined. Um, impulsivity is about 60% genetically determined. Um, alcohol dependence has a heritability of around about 50%. Um, shyness is about 40% genetically determined. Anxiety and depression, around about 30 to 40% genetically determined. Our intelligence is in fact 50% genetically determined. But I think one of the best examples of the role of inheritance um, is in the issue of obesity, on which I'd suggest our society has a fairly naive view. You see, our genes influence our eating behavior. A Finnish study found that a preference for sweet foods is actually determined in part by our genes. Furthermore, um, studies have shown that a preference for spicy foods or even a like of asparagus is determined by our genes. In fact, our weight is around about 60 to 70% genetically determined. It's higher than our intelligence, um, for instance. Um, but our weight is only 30 to 40% determined by exercise. Um, so the genetic loading for our weight is far higher than the exercise component. But even our desire to exercise is determined by our genes. A multinational study, which included an Australian arm, found that um, genes are more likely to influence exercise behavior than environmental factors. So what about the issue of nurture? Again, I'm going to use my wife to illustrate. As many of you know, my wife is Samoan genetically, but she was adopted into a Caucasian family. Unfortunately, she neglected to tell me this when I was dating her. So I went home to her house expecting to see two brown parents sitting on the couch, I got the shock of my life when there were two white people sitting there. But her parents also adopted two Maori children, 
a Scottish child, and they had three biological children of their own. So when you go to her house, it's a little bit like the United Nations, all sitting in one room. What's fascinating, though, is that there is a huge number of similarities that you can see between Rach and her siblings, um, similarities in terms of their mannerisms, similarities in terms of their phrases of speech, similarities in terms of the way they think about things. So clearly, there is a nurture component um, to our behavior. In fact, Rach often comments that she is a coconut, that she's brown on the outside, but white on the inside. The idea of nurture impacting on our behavior is not a new concept. Um, consider this proverb, which was written 1,000 years BC. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Moving forward to the early 1900s, Sigmund Freud, who was the father of modern psychology, also recognized the role of a parent in the child's development. To quote Freud, if a man has been his mother's undisputed darling, he retains throughout life the triumphant feeling, the confidence in success, which often brings actual success with it. So I guess Freud's advocating for mummy's boys um, with that kind of quote. But on the role of the father, Freud wrote this, I cannot think of any need in childhood as strong as the need for a father's protection. This idea of Freud's was further elaborated through the 1900s by various therapists who used wonderful phrases like the good enough mother, the good breast and the bad breast, uh, the mother is the holding environment. It then moved forward to a guy called James Bowlby, who was a British psychiatrist, who developed what is now known as attachment theory. Attachment theory says this, that the mother is the secure base, that the mother becomes the base from which the child goes out into the world um, to explore the world, but keeps returning to the security of the mother, but then gradually ventures further and further. And over the course of time, the mother helps develop what he called an internalized working model. So this is kind of an inner organization in the child's psyche that helped it to interact with the world around it. If the child had experienced the security of the mother, they went into the world secure, despite the fact that the mother wasn't there. One of Bowlby's colleagues was called Mary Ainsworth, and she developed a standardized test uh, looking at attachment. The test is called the Strange Situation Test. In the Strange Situation Test, you take an 18-month-old infant <clears throat> and you put them in a room with a stranger, who's usually the researcher, the mother, and the infant. After a few minutes, you ask the mother to leave the room. So the infant's left there with the stranger. After a few more minutes, you ask the mother to come back into the room, and the mother is reunited again with the infant. When you look at how the infant reacts to the mother leaving and the mother returning, it gives you a very good idea as to what their attachment status is. The really interesting thing is that when they followed up children that have been through this strange situation test, you follow them up into adulthood, the strange situation test is a very strong predictor of how they interact with the world and how they perceive themselves. So clearly, these early influences of nurture have enduring effects right through into adulthood. But just when we thought we had it all sorted, we discovered there's a whole lot more complexity to the nature versus nurture thing. More recent studies have recognized that it is far from simple. In fact, our nature, in part, shapes the nurture that we receive, and vice versa, the nurture that we receive shapes the nature of our genes. I'm going to illustrate this by giving you two quick examples. So first example, Mr. Joe Blow, 
he has two children. He has a little boy called Lucifer, and he has a little girl called Angel. Now, Lucifer, he is a stubborn, moody, determined young boy. He's always on the go, and he likes doing things like burning the cat's tail with a magnifying glass and putting fake vomit in his sister's bed. On the other hand, Angel, now she's a placid, sweet, delightful little child. She likes art history, and she delights in cooking gourmet meals for the family. Now, one of these children is disciplined 10 times a day. The other child is only disciplined once during the day. There's no prizes for guessing who cops Joe Blow's frustration. You see, multiple studies have shown that despite our best efforts as parents, we do not give our children exactly the same experience growing up. The child's temperament will shape the way that we respond to the child. Um, so studies have shown that children growing up do not, in fact, receive exactly the same nurture from their parents. The nurture they receive is, in part, shaped by their nature. In terms of environment affecting genes, I'm going to quote from a recent New Zealand study which was looking at criminal behaviour in early adolescence. Now, as a number of you know, I come from New Zealand, and I just want to point out that this was completely coincidental, this was in New Zealand. Do not assume that all New Zealand adolescents are criminals. Um, the study has actually been replicated um, in Scandinavia as well. What they found was that there's a very strong interaction between a particular gene profile, which is called the Mayo polymorphism, and the family environment. Children who had the good gene had very low rates of criminal behaviour, regardless of what environment they grew up in. So they could have grown up in the neighbourhood drug house, and they would still turn out okay. But if they had the bad gene, then there was a variance, depending on the family environment. So if they had, sorry, if they had the good gene, but a bad family, they still turned out okay. If they had a bad gene and a good family, they turned out okay. But if they had the bad gene, plus they grew up in a bad family environment, then they had much elevated rates of criminal behaviour. So to summarise the study, bad gene plus bad family equals badass criminal. <laughs> the point of this is that there is an interaction. The family environment somehow modifies the way in which the gene is expressed um, in the child. And other studies have shown this, both at a... Um, laboratory level, um, but also at a global um, sort of behaviour or even an illness level, that there is an interaction between the environment in which we're raised and the expression of particular genes. So, um, sadly, I cannot offer a definitive answer to the debate of nature versus nurture. It seems to be a both-and type conclusion. It is both nature and nurture and some kind of complex interaction between the two which scientists are really only just beginning to discover. So when I wonder why I'm not an all-black, I can neither blame my parents for the rubbish genes they gave me, nor can I blame them for the lack of coaching, but I have to conclude that somebody needs to peel the oranges. So briefly, to conclude, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the relevance of all of this. What does it all matter, anyways? Now, to some of you, you're simply going to say, wow, that was very interesting, but where's the coffee? Um, the geeks amongst us are going to jump up at question time, grab a microphone, they're going to ask about the short arm of chromosome 15, the role of oxytocin metabolism and its influence on maternal bonding. And, and that's cool. I don't know the answer to it, but you can ask the question. Um, 
some of you are going to go, wow, this is really interesting. Is there a role for gene therapy um, in terms of helping alleviate suffering? And the answer is yes. Um, there are some studies looking at gene therapies, and hopefully there's going to be more development um, in that area. But I'd suggest the main reason that people are interested in the topic of nature versus nurture is because somehow it relates to our identity. It relates to the question of who we are, uh, where we've come from, what our purpose um, in life is. I would suggest there's a human desire that's universal to understand the answer to these questions. But unfortunately, on these type of questions, science has no answer. It is the role of philosophers and religion to try and answer that question. So I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite passages um, from the Bible. This passage comes from the older part of the Bible, which is called um, the Old Testament. Um, it's Psalm 139. Now, to put it in context here, this is um, King David, who was the great king of ancient Israel, um, writing about God. Um, so it's a poem that he wrote about God. And he said this, You created my inmost being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my goings out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Now, if the Bible is true, and if these words are to be believed, then God has completely shaped both our nature and our nurture. Who we are has been generously created by a God when he tenderly knitted us together before we were even born. Not only that, he continues to watch over us everything that we say and everything that we do. For me, that is profound. Um, and it is greatly comforting to me to know that I am not just some kind of random chance, that my DNA has not been created um, through some kind of haphazard chemical process over millions and millions of years. It's greatly reassuring for me to know that my DNA was knitted together by a God who loves and cares for me. So the question that I want to leave you with is, do you believe the Bible? And do you want to know this God who has shaped both your nature and your nurture? Well, that's all I have to say on the issue of nature versus nurture, but I'm very happy to answer any questions if people do have questions.